Hi, good morning everyone. Today we have the amazing Asby Brown. Again, this time we are talking about the very small home, Japanese ideas for living well in limited space, and we will be right back, so stick around. Hi, good morning everyone. Thanks for joining. How is your Monday so far? Hopefully you are starting the week right. We have sun here in Hiroshima. I heard Asby, you don't have such great weather in Tokyo. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> yes, it's a rainy day. Oh no. <clears throat> well, it, we need yes, it rain was beautiful. as well. It is rainy. Yeah. Yep. Thank you so much for joining mm. once again. I'm so excited to talk about another of your amazing books, this time about Japanese innovation in building design for small buildings. I love it. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. There's always so much to talk about. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. That's great. Um, let's start with, you sent me some historical background about small living spaces. Mm -hmm. Should we start there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, should I just talk about it? Sure. <laughs> I've, I've got a picture here. Uh, you talk about uh -huh. uh, in the showing, the showing style. Uh -huh. Uh-huh. And I've got elaborate cabinetry and showing. What is the showing yeah. style? Where does that come from? Yeah. Um, showing, you know, in Japanese is showing zukuri. Uh, showing actually refers to a, a room that we would call a study, uh, perhaps. And um, there's usually a, a desk called a showing skue. And um, over time, they evolved. They began with uh, actually monks, etc., as part of, of uh, some temple buildings and sort of expanded to their aristocratic classes and then later more to uh, more common classes. But um, they are kind of a, a, a unit in the home that has a desk and shelves uh, and good light uh, directly onto the writing desk. Uh, and the idea is that, you know, you would sit there and uh, you know, you'd be using your beautiful uh, brush and ink uh, to, to, to do your work or your writing. Uh, and all of the cabinetry was designed not only to be compact, but also beautifully arranged, a beautiful composition in, in its own right. And these, again, this was not low cost in any way. These often were very beautifully done with lacquer and wonderful fittings and paintings on the, the doors and the shutters, etc. But it really is um, kind of this, it, it shows this notion of setting off a certain space. Almost in, in most cases, there was often a change in floor level as well before you went to this little area and of course uh, people were sitting on the floor so it's designed to be used uh, while seated on the floor and there's some beautiful examples some of the ones that I uh, have sent you photos of are from Katsura Rikyu and um, in in the great showing there and uh, wonderful thing that I I always um, you know like to point out is that um, that showing square the desk itself of course it's a beautifully reflective surface with uh, black lacquer so beautifully polished lacquer but uh, the window is actually also open underneath the desk so light actually comes in from the floor level and this is one of these ideas if you you look at this you the Japanese traditional design pays a lot of attention to light and often has uh, window openings or openings for light in places where we would not have expected them in in the Western tradition so you know, at the floor level maybe very high up uh, often in the ceiling itself in in a tea house for instance and and uh, these things all work with the, the composition and it's beautifully adjustable depending on the conditions that you actually want 
Um, I think this is one of one of the. I was going to point out this is one of the things that um, has definitely influenced contemporary Japanese architects. I mean, everyone knows this. They study this. They learn it. And there's a lot of design that is sort of a conscious updating of a lot of these ideas. So when we see lots of beautiful Japanese cabinetry and storage and and built-ins, uh, a lot of the people are aware of what you know had been accomplished in these earlier centuries in the traditional design. Yeah, I think this is something you. You often talk about in your book as well, which we'll talk about later, but the use of natural light as well as convenient cabinetry for storing things away, keeping clutter away from the room is, is a big part of living in small spaces, right? Yeah, and it's I would say it's one of the main uh, aspects that can really make a smaller house livable. And and again, one of the things that good Japanese architects and and there are so many very very good Japanese architects. Uh, one thing that they excel at is is finding ways to bring in the right ca character of light, especially you know in urban areas where you know the uh, house next door is just you know 50 centimeters away and it's very constrained. We find uh, designers finding innovative ways. Uh, again, maybe from up high, maybe from down low, maybe a narrow skinny window, uh, but it really makes or breaks it. And it's not purely a functional thing. Um, light sort of activates the space. Uh, it helps, uh, it can make the space feel bigger. Uh, if you have light from two directions, for instance, it, it really, the, the house becomes part of the environment. It's changing over the course of the day as the light is changing. Uh, and some of it can be direct. A lot of it can be indirect, you know, bouncing off of a surface. Uh, and, and the big thing is that's one of the main ways we bring the outside in. And again, this is sort of a psychological thing. Uh, bring, finding ways to bring the outside into the house, if it's small and very compact, is a way to make it, you know, psychologically feel bigger. And again, we see this in Japanese tea houses uh, from, you know, centuries ago. They all uh, had the same kind of psychological functioning that the good Japanese designers now are using. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned about the commoner's house the three subo like old old japan even a thousand amazing. years ago amazing right yeah. um yeah i mean uh i think uh, you know this is a illustration um uh from the heian period basically uh and a a you know townhouse or, or, or a shop house um you know in kyoto and yes it's only like 10 square meters unbelievable uh, and and this was the the room. This was the space for our entire family, and they're doing business here, and they're also living here. So this, you know, um, I think it shows that the roots of this, you know, uh, ability to use very very compact spaces to live in, uh, really go very very far back in Japanese history. Um, you know, prior to this, you know, if if it was a farm uh, community, the farmhouses would be bigger, and they have consistently through history in Japan been larger, often much larger. Um, and you have to think of these not merely as a dwelling, but those are also kind of a a, a family-run business, and there may be several generations living there and workspace, etc. So there's a lot of reasons for them to be large, but in space was always at a premium and if you were a commoner a low-ranking person not necessarily economically well off uh, you know you're probably renting this this little shop space um, you know this was as much as you could get it could seem substandard it could seem oppressive to some but a lot of the roots of other uh, Japanese urban design we see here so you come in with the doma the earthen passageway on the side so there's an earthen area and a raised floor and at this point they weren't really using tatami you know in, in this class of person wasn't having tatami uh, uh, so it was kind of a wooden floor and there'd be some 
straw mats, etc. But uh, the same idea that everything has to be folded up and put out of the way or hung on the wall, get out of the way, that is all uh, really extant even uh, a thousand years ago in these townhouses in Kyoto. And looking at and it the, doesn't get much better. Yeah, and <laughs> Later. looking looking at the design, even a thousand years ago, you've got yeah. the genkan, you've got the raised right. living area, and then you've right. got the earthen passageway, and then yeah. um, like a little garden or something. I mean, it's very typical to what you might see now. It hasn't really changed in design that much, or function. Yeah, the kind of. The kind of mental mapping of it hasn't changed that much. The the public space, the private space, um, and I don't know if you will show, but I have a you know from maybe late Edo period, um, you know, 150 years ago or so, uh, commoner. In some cases, they were a little bigger. I mean, the average house was was like a rokujo, so six mat room. So the whole thing is about uh, 100 square feet, 105 square feet, uh, rather, uh, or or like nine, almost less than 10 square meters, which is about the same as a, a what do you call it? one room mansion now right about 10 square meters is kind of a typical small one in tokyo maybe bigger in your area um, but again the, all the features are there the the earth floor a little tiny kitchen space uh, you step up onto it, maybe a slight wooden floor and then in this case they had tatami but again it's this very super compact home uh you know 10 square meters are, and it is you know for a family whereas what we think of a one room mansion we think well that's only appropriate now for a single person uh, and and to be fair, a one-room mansion now will have a unit bath and will have sort of a better kitchen than than these things these places had. Uh, but again, this was a family space, and two-thirds of the the population of a place like Edo uh, lived in this kind of uh, area, this kind of floor area. So again, the history is there, and and this was not considered substandard. If anything, things got better over time in terms of the available floor space. Uh, so interesting. And uh, for your book, uh, switching to modern design, now this simple mm -hmm. block style um, is something yeah. that you introduced from 1950s, the minimum Masuzawa yeah. design is very similar. Yeah, so here's here's the big thing. Um, you know, I came to Japan in the 80s, mid-80s, and was looking at, you know, home design as well as the traditional carpentry that I was uh, studying and writing about. And very, very fascinating in, in how compact the houses were and how many good compact designs I saw. And at the time, it was the bubble. And then the bubble ended in the, right around 1990, 1991. And after that, um, there was kind of a detectable change in, uh, let's say, the values or some of the aspirations for, for housing. Of course, housing became out of reach for a lot of people. And uh, a trend began. I want to say I, I date it back to maybe maybe it's it's 2000 or, or maybe a little bit, maybe before, 1999. Uh, the house that you just showed called the Sumire Aoi House uh, is from 1999. And this was consciously modeled on a house by Makoto Masazawa from 1952 called the Japanese Minimum House, which which was uh, one of a series of, of the uh, designs sort of sponsored by the government, competition sponsored by the government to help uh, house people in the immediate post-war period. And again, you have to remember that the, the, the country was devastated. Every urban area had been burned, firebombed. Uh, there was a huge shortage of housing uh, for people. They were living in very substandard things, really, you know, baraku, really shacks in a lot of places in the urban cities. And, and the government said, we have to house people better. And they started uh, competitions, including one that resulted in this house, very compact, but livable. 
and 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 fairly well built. So uh, that house was kind of a historical monument in that sense. And the designers uh, Makoto Koizumi, uh, who designed the Sumeri Ai House, otherwise known as the Nine Tsubo House, and Atsubo, as you know, is an area of two uh, tatami mats. So it's about three point three square meters, right? Uh, so it's Nine Tsubo, and this seems really small to people. And he said, "No, I think we can re redo this. Let's let's update this idea." And they built this house, and it's a family with two kids, uh, and they lived, they lived in this house. And uh, it started, I think, I, I sort of date, and maybe other people would date this trend called the Kyosho Jutaku, Kyosho Jutaku, which you might call the micro home uh, or the super compact home, uh, to around this, this time. I think this house got uh, so much press and so much notice, both in the architectural press, in the profession, and in the popular press. I think it sort of showed uh, and kind of kicked off a, a trend. And uh, certainly by the time I, my book, I think, came out in 2005, um, you know, 2003, there was just the steady stream of super compact houses, these Kyosho Jutaku, done by superb architects, beautifully designed, kind of showing that um, to live well doesn't mean just to have a lot of floor area. There's a lot of other things that in influence the quality of life. And to have a house designed very well for you, uh, and if it's it can be very compact and make use of a very small lot in an urban area that'll allow you to have a house in the urban in the urban area. Otherwise, you would not be able to do it. This is really a wonderful thing to aspire to. So the values were different, and and it's kind of like anybody can say, "Oh, I have such a big house. You know, isn't my house wonderful?" That's like a kind of a low level uh, consciousness in terms of design, but to actually uh, you know say, "Oh, you know, my house is beautifully designed." Uh, making great use of this limited space and, and all these things. My house has beautiful design features to, to maximize the livability of, of my small living space. This is a whole different uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, way to value homes. And I think this trend became very noticeable in the early 2000s and, and later in the public press. I mean, I would see overseas even at the end, like 2000. 2010, even more recently, there's still, it's still being highlighted as kind of a notable trend in Japanese home design. So all the houses, almost all the houses in my book are sort of, would be considered Kyosho Jutaku, super compact or, or micro homes. And taking that uh, block style, which seems like it's good structurally in that it's strong, um, often made with steel and concrete, from the outside it doesn't look very impressive, but uh, when you look like in your book, how you can you can uh, make the windows with like the Seito Naika view or like a beautiful sea view or forest view. So it's very simple square four by four or square Aoi house like you introduce. But when you open it up to nature or you open it up with windows to the surroundings, you don't feel like you're in a confined space anymore, right? That's the beauty right. of it. Right. Yeah, the one you just showed is by Tadao Ando. And of course, he is a superb first rank, you know, architect uh, who can turn down as much work as he wants. Uh, and he particularly found that uh, project to be interesting. And it's a very tall vertical home and uh, done by a designer, not, in, not inexpensive by any means, I think. Uh, but yes, it's concentrating on the space and the view, on the three-dimensionality of the space. And I think that is, again, a key feature of the better uh, subcompact homes that we see in Japan. They're very three-dimensional. 
uh, you could say a block or a cube, but they, they have verticality, they have uh, sight angles that can go up at an angle through the house, um, and there's maybe smaller volumes sort of nestled into larger volumes, the sort of thing that Tadal Ando does. And of course, in that case, you have this beautiful, you know, uh, sea view, and it was like, you know, often I, I talk about something called the big idea, uh, where you know, if you don't, you can't do everything. Uh, so if you have an idea of, of what in your life is important, maybe it's the kitchen and you want to have a house that centers on the kitchen, uh, or maybe you have a great view, you know, and in the case of the Ando house, you would go in the bottom, you know, you know, the ocean's there and you get up to like the third floor and wham, Here's this fantastic view. You are hovering over the ocean. It's a beautiful thing. It's a big impact idea. And it makes the house and makes it livable. You don't even notice that it's a very subcompact house. In contrast, there are some of the houses that you feature in your book. Um, they don't mm -hmm. have a great surrounding view. But the architect was able to work with the family to make like a top window view of the surrounding trees or to make yes. a sunlight where they could make take advantage of the beautiful sunlight that's coming in to light their house beautifully, even if they were in a busy urban setting. Just gorgeous design considerations. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many of them. Um, and one, I don't know if you show it, is called the house of Naka Ikegami by Milligram Studio. And I love this house. Um, it's on a narrow urban lot. Uh, and, you know, the houses on either side are so close, there's almost no sense to try to make windows there. Uh, and it's hemmed in, but there is a, a, a park across the street. And, you know, there is a, a Japanese uh, idea called shake used in, in garden design, where uh, it's using, it's called the borrowed landscape. So your actual garden, your house is here, but there is a beautiful mountain far away, and, and you can frame the views in your garden to make that part of your garden. It's a very similar idea, what they did here. So they placed windows in kind of unusual ways. They sort of go up on an angle along the ridgeline of the roof and come down, and, and they're at a height where they hide the kind of ugly houses nearby, but you see the, the trees, et cetera, from the garden across the street. It's just a brilliant design. And of course, again, it's a very three-dimensional thinking, you know, putting yourself in the place and thinking what are the sight lines going to be and then working it out that, that you can, can bring that exterior landscape into the house and, and help your house feel connected to the outdoors. Um, there's lots of examples like that uh, in, in the book and, and in others, you know, where in some cases people designing two houses close to each other and doing the same thing. How can I design the windows to get the light but maintain privacy, even though the house next door is only, you know, less than a meter away? It's very tricky, but you have so many superb designers doing that kind of thing here. Let's, let's talk about when your house is right next to another house, but how you can open up the ground level with the Engoa house is so amazing. Yes. Can you describe that? Yeah, Engawa House is um, is a fairly remarkable uh, one, and it's by Tezuka and Tezuka. They're very, very noted architects, and they do, have done a, a lot of very innovative houses. Uh, Engawa is the Japanese veranda. Uh, so it's generally, um, you know, traditional houses uh, have them. Uh, it, it is sort of a, a veranda space that's in exterior, but also part of the house, part of the living space. So it's kind of a transitional space and, and semi-public, like the neighbors can come and sit there and talk to you while you're inside. It's a transitional space. So they, uh, Tezuka and Tezuka, they uh, had this concept to make a house uh, and, and 
there's a small garden and then an apartment building. The parents uh, own that, and it's not very far away from this. So it's a very narrow space. They just opened the whole thing up and and also uh, designed the windows uh, so that the sunlight would come all the way through. So on the opposite side of this wide opening, it's very huge. The whole thing opens, and structurally it's very challenging. They had to put a big you know steel beam up there to to um, to make that opening uh, like that. Uh, and then they they thought about the sunlight and put windows high up on the opposite side of the house. And that means there's a lot of room for storage. That entire long wall with the transom windows is, is all storage and things, a very well designed. And the sunlight will come all the way through the house. And literally in the photos that I have, you can see that the light actually spills into the garden from the opposite side of the house. It's just a beautiful thing. The whole thing is open and very flexibly designed. So this is an example of, of uh, uh, let's say the space is not so totally differentiated, avoiding using walls and things, just having you know shelves and partitions that can actually be moved uh, and the house can be adjusted over time. And also this house is a beautiful table. Uh, this is one of the things that I noted when I was researching this. Uh, so many houses, the size and placement of the table make it. Uh, the, the table has now become the family space in Japanese homes. I mean, we used to live on the floor. Everything was tatami. Uh, there's still a lot of tatami rooms in Japanese houses, but the table and chair has really taken over as the center of family life. So they have a table, and it's a long, narrow table. It's beautiful. Lots of guests can come over. It's a very inviting and, and uh, hospitable sort of place. So uh, this is a really yeah, remarkable house and simple. It just looks like this long rectangular box, but they worked out all the details beautifully. And to have this entire line, of sliding glass doors able to just bump, 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 just all push out of the way and open this up this is just also sort of a technical tour de force uh, remarkable piece of work yeah. and the use of wood the natural materials the wooden table yeah. the wooden kitchen area um, the wooden framing yeah. of the windows all of that natural yes. wood really helps yeah. make it feel more warm and comfortable if i was imagining yes. if this was uh concrete and ceramic tile it would have a very different feel to be in this long yes. thin room right um just yeah. beautiful beautifully done design yeah, no, wood is a is a wonderful material. And, of course, there's lots of reasons based on tradition to use it. Uh, but, you know, all over the world, it's one of the primary building materials for, for a lot of good reasons. And one is the beauty and the warmth, uh, the fact that it ages well. Um, it As time goes on, it tells stories, you know, about what happened in the house, who lives there. Uh, and it can be done so well, and it's, it's, it's not that expensive, uh, really. So, again, this house, you know, a lot of the structure is steel, uh, but all the surfaces are wood. And, and it absolutely lends this sort of golden warmth to the entire house. Um, it, it's interesting because, you know, there is at the same time a trend, and maybe this is something you were also thinking about talking about, in Japanese home design towards a very white, super modern look. Uh, and this, I was really noticing this, how many of the fine subcompact houses I saw uh, were done in a very modern style. Uh, and even in a way that a lot of Westerners would think was not very homey at all not domestic. And of course, modern architecture has that history, you know, back to the 1920s, 1930s, you know, a lot of it was white uh, and, and, and still is, or maybe it's using metal and things like that, uh, industrial styles. But um, that was a trend in Japan too, that a lot of homes um, are very, very super modern at the same time. And there's cost reasons for that. 
Uh, also, if it's white, it's bright and it will feel bigger. Uh, and then there's some that have combined wood features, wood surfaces with white walls and white surfaces as well. So it's it's an interesting uh, feature. And I think in Japan to use the wood um, almost automatically lends it a traditional flavor, uh, even if it's done in a modern style. Um, going back a little bit to the first one we talked about, Sumire Aoi. Aoi House. Aoi yes. House. Um, this is the yes. Nine Subo. And this, yes, nine subo this house. is very reasonably priced, which I think um, it was it was a surprise to me that you said this was about 10 million yen or about 100,000 mm -hmm. US. And you also right. talked about the pricing of houses in japan and america and how the japanese yes. houses in the 80s was it it was twice as much as in the u.s so uh, not cheap yeah. right well yeah and this is uh, it's sort of a consistent aspect um and i at the time the book was written i think the most recent stats i had were from 2003 and uh pointed out that the average japanese home and now this is including is averaging out smaller apartments and some larger homes but it was about uh, a thousand square feet a little less than a hundred square meters and cost about four hundred thousand dollars so yonsen man roughly yonsen man in uh and uh American houses around the same time uh, were basically uh, twice the size and half the cost. Now, over the p in, in decades between that, you know, it, th that's narrowed a bit. So I think I'm looking at recent stats from like 2018. Again, the average Japanese house is still about a thousand. Uh, square feet. It really hasn't gone up that much. Um, newer apartments, I think the, 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 the floor area has sort of climbed up a bit. Uh, but um, actually, no, the average house, I think 1,300 square feet. So it's, it's climbed up a bit. And the cost has sort of gone up as well. So in, again, the Tokyo area, I have more information. It's about $350,000 in the Tokyo area in general. So it's not that different than the American one. Although if you want to be in Tokyo or its suburbs, it's again back up over four hundred thousand dollars so yonsen man so meanwhile american house uh, costs has, have gone up uh, and also the area has gone up it's gone up to from like um you know 200 and uh, uh, 2300 square feet in other words 214 square meters up to uh 2600 square feet or 240 almost 250 square meters so it's gone up in size but also in cost where now the average house is like 300 uh over three hundred thousand dollars for average u.s house so it's narrowing and i think it's the increase in cost in the u.s that's having showing a bigger change than here uh the main problem of course is the cost of land in urban areas and this is a resource issue and we talk about this is sort of what some one thing that ties it into all these other resource issues that we were talking about previously in terms of sustainability um land is very very valuable and this is because it's a mountainous country and livable flat areas are kind of you know there's not that many of them and they're built up and in cities you know uh, are basically uh, using uh, flatter land that otherwise would have been agriculture uh and the cost is high 
the cost of the land is is often the majority of the cost of building a house here, which is un, unlike almost anywhere else, certainly unlike the U.S. So land is a is a precious resource, and that's reflected in the cost of housing. And this is the main driver for people uh, wanting to build super compact houses because that can minimize the costs of the land for that. Uh, meanwhile, the structures, the you know the wood construction, it it's more expensive. The Japanese way is more expensive than the U.S. building two by fours. They're also much better built. I mean, even the ones that aren't considered that well built here um, are, are are much better built than most American houses. Uh, and there's a kind of running joke that the worst carpenter in Japan can go to America and be the best carpenter. Uh, but there's a lot of other things that have affected uh, the cost of actual construction, like wooden construction. And there's a trend uh, away from you know, using solid wood. Uh, to what's called engineered uh, timbers, like laminated timbers. So you'll see a lot of new houses built with laminated beams and laminated columns and things for the bigger ones. Uh, and then uh, they're still using a lot of joints, whereas before it would have been done by hand or with some hand tools. Uh, now they're automated, you know, computer-controlled machines are cutting these joints and things, be beautifully done, uh, and a lot of hardware. Ever since the Kobe earthquake in 1995, the building codes changed and require a lot of steel hardware. So the flavor of the houses have changed. Uh, Japanese house manufacturers, uh, they all have their own uh, structural, patented structural systems, and some of them are very innovative and very well done. Uh, but it's sort of changing away. It's getting harder and harder to build in a really traditional style. And in fact, you know, that is becoming, you know, more expensive and kind of pricing itself to the place where you really have to be kind of wealthy to build in a really traditional style now. Um, we have a great question from Wendy. Thanks for joining from Facebook, Wendy. She says, great examples of new permanent homes. Any ideas for transportable tiny homes? Thinking semi-permanent versus motor home. Also wondering about taking existing traditional house and reconfiguring for a tiny house. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, so here's an interesting thing. Um, the tiny house trend which is mainly overseas, and I think mainly the U.S., uh, sort of emerged around the same time. Uh, there had been some examples before the year 2000, before the 2000s, uh, but really it sort of took off after this, and, and a lot of the interest that I got for this book came from people interested in tiny homes, uh, and a lot of the examples ended up uh, being you know, used in, in, in other writing and stuff about tiny homes. So there is, a, there is a connection, and the interesting thing is the tiny home in the U.S. Uh, makes use of this sort of loophole uh, that you can build a very, very small home if it's not a permanent home in, in most jurisdictions. So that's why if you make it a, technically a mobile home or a trailer home, then you can build really, really small. And there's counterexamples as well. There's places where you can build a tiny, tiny room, room nine subo house, you know, if it's like a second house or if it's a, you know, a, a cabin in the woods. But um, the tiny home trend has been really interesting and trying to attack some of the same problems we have. And there's been some beautiful examples of, um, you know, for urban renewal, for finding ways to make very compact homes, let's say, to attack homelessness, to make tiny places where, you know, people who are otherwise homeless can at least have a one-room place that's livable, uh, or uh, infill home, places that otherwise would, would go through sort of urban blight uh, or could suffer from really out-of-scale uh, redevelopment to make very small compact homes that could be manufactured uh, like mobile homes and then carted, prefabricated, modular, carted to the site and put there. So these are all trends that we've seen since the late 90s and, and 2000s. Um, there's a lot of ideas there. 
Japan doesn't really have that culture or regulations that make that um, a good option. Uh, you'll see very, very few mobile homes in Japan. Uh, on the other hand, you have a lot of prefabricated homes. Uh, some of them are, are done, actually, the entire prefabricated unit. Sexy house is one that they make steel, uh, basically rectangular modules, room modules, that they truck to the site and bolt together, uh, and they're beautiful and well-structured. Uh, other manufacturers use what's called panelization, so they, they manufacture all these wall panels, they have all the wiring and plumbing already inside, and they bring that to the site, and they bolt them together, etc., and there are others as well. So it's very, very advanced technology here, really probably the best in the world. Um, and that has sort of taken the place of modular housing or mobile homes or these things in the state. But I think, you know, one thing about Japan is there's a lot of building codes, but there's not a lot of building inspections. And this was something I noticed when I built my own house. And I actually, after the Kobe earthquake, took a, a group of researchers, uh, you know, to do a study for the government on building codes uh, in the U.S. And especially looking in California because they had had the uh, earthquakes in the 1990s there as well. And, um, you know, all of my colleagues, Japanese colleagues, were amazed at how often buildings get inspected during construction in the U.S., whereas in Japan, it's like almost none. So I'm just saying, I'm not saying go ahead and do it, but there's a lot of things that can be done because no one's going to pay attention, and uh, you might be able to get away with it and build something technically safe, etc., uh, if you do it in a way that sort of makes makes use of certain loopholes. Much easier in a rural area. You yeah. Know. Um, she has another question, which I was going to ask. Very good question. Could you speak to the yeah. urban legend of new houses being built for a 30 to 40 year lifespan only? So a lot of the small houses that you introduce in your book are made with very strong materials, concrete, steel, um, very simple, sturdy designs. So are is the concept kind of changing that you could live in these for a hundred years, uh, or is that concept that you need to rebuild every thirty years? Is that still standard in Japan? I, I think it's still the basic expectation from most people who have a house built, and there's a lot of reasons why this seems to have become the case. Uh, we know it's possible to build wooden houses that can live that can, that can be used for hundreds of years. We know that. We see the temple carpenters, we see the old farmhouses, we know it's possible. Uh, and if they're just maintained well, they, they can. And uh, But I think it's more of the post-war, it's a post-war thing, uh, where the immediate uh, post-war housing, as I was mentioning, often was really substandard, and people lived in them just for a short time and knocked them down. They were looking forward to how soon they could knock them down. Uh, and then when they wanted to rebuild, they had to rebuild something that was not going to be that expensive. So often, they weren't really built that well. The first generations of post-war housing often were not really built to a high standard, and uh, after 30 years, they were really showing their wear, showing their age. The other thing is, again, um, there is not much of a resale value for old houses in Japan. And this is a strange psychological thing. It has created the market. It's the same for cars. You can't sell an old car in Japan. You can't really sell an old house in Japan. Uh, people want a new one. And, and what's the psychology behind that? I've thought about that for years as well. But it's an odd thing. So uh, it makes sense that you expect to live in the house for one or two generations, yourself and your kids, uh, and then expect that it will be knocked down and someone will build something new. Again, because the, 
bulk of the value is in the land itself. The land is, is, is so much more expensive than the actual house structure that that sort of makes some kind of economic sense. I think it's unfortunate. Um, I was surprised when I built my house. Um, I, I had a carpenter working with me that I really liked, and he was very cooperative. And, and one day he came to me and said, Mr. Brown, your house will last 50 years. And I was shocked. I thought, what? Only 50 years? Uh, you know, because I'm from New Orleans where, you know, I grew up in a house that was like 100 years old. And um, I'm expecting, why not 100 years? And I know there was one manufacturer, um, Misawa Home, had, had in the 80s and 90s had made a big advertising push that they were building the century house. They were building houses that were less than 100 years. And that was a big sales point. So we know that it's possible technically. But I think people just don't expect it. Uh, and yes, structurally, um, you know, there's no reason why most of these structures won't last that long. Uh, one of the some of the questionable aspects are the more we use laminates and use construction adhesives for things like to stick wall panels on and things. There's a lot of adhesives that are in use. Well, we just don't have. They haven't been in use long enough. We don't have the experience to know they'll last 100 years. So uh, some things may come unstuck, but the joints and the hardware and the bolts, I mean, if the foundation is good enough, they should last a long time. You may have to redo the plumbing. You may have to redo the electrical. You're probably going to have to redo the floors. You may want to redo the walls. Every house that lasts for generations undergoes this constant renewal. We may expect that. And there's lots of, you know, people doing that here house renewal is a big market here so it's there's no reason why it they couldn't last a long time but i think the buyers the clients don't expect that and they're probably unwilling to pay a premium to ensure that that will be the case yeah when we bought our 50 year old home uh, we were really happy with the outside we love the aesthetic of it um, we talked to reform companies, remodeling companies, and they said, definitely, mm -hmm. we can stay within your budget and remodel. We were really happy with that. But we actually got a discount when we bought the land and house because they said, of course, you're going to have to knock down that house. And we're like, we're going to keep it. Yeah. But they gave us a discount because the house was considered rubbish. Yes. Something that it's you crazy, would want to get rid of, you know? And then That's we crazy. were we You're were so happy to work with remodeling companies that said if you remodel it, make it more structurally sound a little bit, remodel it every five years, you can live in this forever. They said, you know, so I was like, Thank you. Felt so happy. Yeah, I mean, the main thing is to take care of the roof. You know, you wanna avoid having water get in, you know. That's one thing that'll the, the worst thing is that water gets into the house and then starts to rot the structure and then the whole thing will collapse. And, you know, we see that in places like Fukushima where they've been abandoned for 10 years and even houses that were new then are now pretty derelict because of that. Um, but, yeah, you just take some minimum of, of maintenance. And homeowners, this is something people have known, although I think the current generations, the post-war generations in Japan, have not had to do that. So they're maybe not as aware of how to maintain a house for generations. So this was know-how that just existed forever. And we talked before, I think, about, you know, uh, rethatching uh, roofs of Japanese farmhouses where this is the whole community would come together to do it. And everybody had the sense of time. Oh, it's going to be about 50 years. You know, once you do it, then 50 years later, this is going to have to be redone. There's this time scale in everyone's mind. So it means grandpa is thinking grandson will have to take that job, you know? Uh, and that sensibility was just common everywhere. And now, unfortunately, is not. At the same time, I, I think, you know, the comfort of Japanese homes uh, in the last several decades, of course, is better. 
you know, everyone has their own bath. Okay, we don't go to the sento. That's really kind of a social loss. But of course, it's nice to have a bath and Japanese baths are great. The houses are better insulated. When I came to Japan, almost nothing was insulated. Uh, now they're better insulated. Uh, the, 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 the technical features, the air conditioning, all that stuff is much better. Uh, and and they're, they're just better built. Um, and I would say most of that is due to engineering, Japanese engineering, all the best Japanese engineering devoted to housing problems. So um, this is kind of a good thing. But at the same time, the notion that a house is something that's living, it's a living thing, um, you know, and and they they adapt to us just as we adapt to them over generations. And they tell stories, you know, here's the ding in the floor where, you know, the kid, you know, dropped something and, and marked the floor, you know. All these things, to me, are the beautiful part of life in a house. And I don't think that this sense of a uh, house as a, something that can age beautifully is really commonly uh, understood or appreciated now. I, I wish it were, and I hope over time that that'll change. Well, I, I think you give us some great examples of very classic, beautiful, small house designs, which can mm -hmm. carry on in for generations and be loved by generations uh one of the things that kengo kuma says about your designs is the big idea the focus on yeah. essentials and poetry in the way yeah. that a certain design is carried on in the the home and i think in the houses you show in the book for example the wedge house the natural wedge yeah. house there yeah. is a very distinct design which is kind of the theme of the whole house and it makes the house more comfortable more beautiful in many senses i love that yeah that's kind of an um, that was an amazing house um natural wedge and um one thing i'll point out is you know you look at it it looks like um part of a machine or something it's again modern machine aesthetic uh and this is also not an inexpensive house. You know, this has got a fairly complex structure, these sort of steel lattices that the whole thing is made of, uh, and then the walls are translucent. Uh, so there's actually insulation in there, but they found a translucent insulation. So the whole house at nighttime, it's like a lantern. In the daytime, it's like the light is coming in through the walls as well as through this long, long skylight. Uh, and it's a very transparent house, and you can see up and down through it. And the, the client was kind of a computer, as I recall, uh, had a computer software company, uh, probably very, very successful, uh, and did that. And he wanted a place that was very social, and his friends could come over and play music and stuff. So there's a big space there as well. Um, so, yeah, the design is really, in this case, the big idea is this structure. Uh, and then, you know, like a lot of things in Japan, you know, uh, building codes pay attention to some things a lot more than others. And, and light, sight lines and light, uh, sunlight uh, is a big deal. So a lot of houses, you know, have to be sloped. Uh, have a sloped roof line or sloped walls in order to uh, allow the sunlight to reach the street adequately, which is very important in Japanese building code. So I think this took that idea of you know the light, the sunlight reaching the street, and sort of sort of ran with it. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of you know this is one example. There's other examples of big ideas. Um, you know maybe there was examples of people who were like collectors and, and they just wanted to have lots of shelves for their collection in their house. Um, uh, I, there was another house, the woman, um, you know, wanted to have a little 
garden in the middle of the house based on like a tsubonima. So that's the big thing. There's the, the floor space is smaller because there's a beautiful tree growing in this garden from the ground floor up to the second floor. Um, there's so many examples of that. Kitchens. Kitchens are a great one. Um, there's again this house I mentioned earlier called um, the house in Nakagaike. They love cooking. They love cooking, love have people coming over. So they made a big kitchen with this wonderful, you know, counters that pull out and maximize the, 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 the counter space so they can cook a big feast with their friends. And then uh, on normal times, that all just sort of shuts out of the way. So uh, having a big idea is, is, is important. And it may be a design feature. It may be simply accommodate, accommodating your lifestyle. Maybe... You know, if you looked at most homes today in Japan and maybe elsewhere, you would think the big idea was to sit and watch television. You know, that's the big idea. We're, we're going to sit and watch television. And okay, that's fine if that's your thing. But we do also see a, a strong trend towards houses, new houses being built specifically with an extra room, like a hobby room. And maybe that would be a child's room if necessary. But yeah, expect that people want to have a space for their hobby. Maybe they're doing uh, sewing or knitting or, or they're painting or making ceramics or something. So uh, I do see more and more attention paid to people having space in their house for expressing their individuality. And I think that's going to be key. One of the houses I want to point out, uh, we have another question from Greg. I'll get to you in a moment, Greg. Um, is the crisscross design house where you can see the beams throughout the house that is just gorgeous is that the natural wedge house because that might, is a crisscross it is yeah because that really be is this lattice house. yeah yeah and yeah. inside and we'll, you can kind of see through the walls so they chose yes it's to translucent. Do like a translucent yeah. kind of glass yeah. throughout the house as yeah. well yeah, that's the natural wedge house that we were just talking about. It is amazing. And, um, you know, I'm curious to see how, how it will age. Um, I, I bet, you know, it's industrial stuff, you you know, joints between the glass and stuff. You probably have to recalk it, et cetera. I think it'll age well. But one thing I want to point out is that um, many of the interesting houses that I featured in the book, the engineers played a big role in in realizing the house the design in this case it was uh, a man named Masahiro Ikeda and he actually engineered a few of the other houses in my book as well um, and this is because you know uh, in in especially in the 2000s um, you know engineering software became so powerful uh, and and so the it became able to do on a normal computer, what used to need like a supercomputer to do uh, became much less expensive. So engineers can take work. They can afford to do work for a single family house, which they often wouldn't have done, except if it's a super, super luxury house. So a lot of these things, these are small, super compact houses where the engineer gets double billing, equal billing with the architect in several cases, uh, because the architects acknowledge that they couldn't have done it without an engineer figuring out that structure. In the case of Natural Wedge, how do you do those beautiful steel lattices and make them as thin as possible and as lightweight as possible and make sure they can be manufactured? There's another house called the Penguin House you may show. Uh, beautifully designed engineering-wise, kind of amazing engineering, uh, using this thin sheets of steel that are sort of bent, sort of flexed, uh, that actually make a rigid uh, structure. 
And this is a brilliant insight by the engineer. Of course, he can run it through the software and do the, all those tests in the software to make sure that it's going to be adequate. So this is a remarkable thing. I see this more in Japan than anywhere else. It may be happening in the U.S. I rarely hear of it. And I think it has to do also with this drive to innovation, um, you know, modernity, this technical, you know, wonderful technical, uh, you know, skill and, and, and insight that uh, Japanese designers often have. Beautiful. And yeah. it's, it's interesting because uh, in Japan you have both, you have some very traditional houses and then you have yeah. some very creative modern houses. And sometimes yeah. in an urban setting you can get that big contrast. And I love both of them. The ones that I dislike yeah. are the ones that were put up without any thought whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. No, and there's unfortunately a lot of those. And we see that. I mean, you go to average neighborhoods. Um, yeah, you see, a, again, a lot of, let's say, thoughtless, thoughtlessly designed houses. And, and often it's a, a house builder, a building company, a comatin, and they have their way of doing it and, and the client that, that satisfies the client. But it doesn't necessarily cost more to have a better design. Uh, and you can get a manufactured house from a house manufacturer as well. That is pretty much a custom house. And they have their certain styles. You know, you, you won't have total flexibility. Then if you want to hire an architect, there are so many to choose from. And what was happening in this period in the 2000s is the the rise of uh, what's called Jutaku Produce, so home design pr production companies, which would make a contract with a bunch of architects. And then uh, someone who wants a house would go to that company and be shown, uh, almost as if you were going to an art gallery or something, uh, be shown you know works by the, the stable of designers that they are representing, and and you can say yes, I want something by Yamashita-san, I want something by Ikeda-san, I want something by something else, and then and then they would introduce the architect and 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 then also help with the the legal and all the other contractual and the oversight, and they took up a, a percentage. So it it was in the sense the architects weren't making as much, uh, but it was easier because they were finding a lot more work. Um, I think this trend may have declined since then, but this was very noticeable. And all of the, you know, lifestyle magazines, the Brutus and all of these Japanese magazines, they were highlighting this. They were saying, let's look at Jutaka Produce and let's look at these interesting designs. If you wanted to house by this architect, you contact this Jutaka Produce company and they will introduce you. So this is also a social trend and marketing trend as much as anything else. Um, we'll get to the questions now. Gregory says, our contractor belonged to a group that aims to build homes that last for 100 years. I was under the impression that they were trying to get the government to give tax breaks, etc., to people building for the long term. Have you heard of anything about that? I haven't, but I think that's a great idea. Yeah. I think it's a great idea. I I, it makes me want to look into it. I think they should uh, for lots of reasons, certainly uh, sustainability reasons. Um, you know, basically houses have uh, ecological footprints. Uh, and this is, it, you know, this includes both the materials that they use, the energy that they use, the waste that's produced, um, you know, in constructing them or over the, the, the lifespan of the house. And the longer that a house is in use, uh, assuming that it's a, it's, it's a well-done house, that footprint sort of averages out to be smaller. It's used longer um, if you demolish it after 30 years and build a new, and then you have this entire new cycle of waste, uh, of, of material consumption, energy consumption, and waste. So um, it should be encouraged for those reasons, if no other reason. Again, assuming that it's it's 
enough energy efficient and that it's using materials uh, in a non-wasteful way. Um, there's a lot of reasons from the point of view of ecological footprint, energy footprint to support this. Uh, and technically, we know it's possible to maintain and, and, and retrofit and, you know, remodel things very, very well as technology changes, you know, in the future, 100 years from now. Who knows what kinds of energy systems we'll have? Of course, it should be able to be retrofitted. Uh, I would like that. I don't see it. Um, we sometimes see, uh, you know, in, in cases of historical preservation. Uh, in a, in places where a, a district has been uh, earmarked, um, you know, partly for tourism reasons, they want to keep the the traditional townscape. They'd like to keep as many traditional homes as possible. Often, uh, and it's more for municipalities that uh, tax breaks are given for those sorts of things. Uh, but it's not specifically for the house, a new house to last 100 years. It's more to maintain historical landscape. Um, they are not generally very generous uh, subsidies, and they may only last for a short period of time, uh, but uh, they do exist, and I've seen that in, in, in historical districts uh, more than anywhere else. Uh, we had another comment from Solvig Borgen. Thank you for joining. She says, what a great talk, very interesting and inspiring. I'd love a tour to see spaces like this in real life. That's a great idea. Do they do tours? Um. <laughs> Um, do they do tours? Do you do um, tours? Yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. I have done quite a few. And um, over time, I've gotten to know most of these designers pretty well. And, and often, you know, I'm constantly getting uh, emails when they have new projects and uh, open houses and stuff. Um, I like to do it. But, you know, the fact is, it's, it's usually an imposition on the homeowners. And, um, you know, it, it can be done. And it's, 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 Easier if it's like a group, let's say a museum group or an academic group who's studying something specifically. Um, but it would be interesting. I mean, it's easy to do a tour of the exteriors. Um, the the big caveat being that most of these houses, in fact, all of the houses in this book are from the Tokyo area. And mo many of them are in suburbs, you know, very far flung. So it takes time to get to them. So uh but I think it's a great idea, and if someone is really interested, I'd love to think about it and, and look into it and, and also point out that um, there are a lot of new projects uh, since this time. I mean, this book, like as I mentioned, came out in 2005. Um, that's, you know, more than 15 years ago. And this trend has continued, has continued and proliferated uh, and, and newer things to look at. And one thing that I became fascinated in uh, right around this time and right after is shared housing. Uh, that a new it's something that emerged. I think I want to say early two thousand mid two thousands two thousand ten maybe a little bit earlier. Um, certain companies uh, designing houses uh, or, or or renovating old corporate dorms as shared living, uh, as an approach to give people um, a maximum livable space their own private space, and then have shared kitchens and baths and stuff. And this has become a real noticeable trend. I think it, it is part of the compact living thing, but then addressing some of the social needs for this as well. And this is not top-down, some government person said, oh, we should encourage people to share houses. It's kind of grassroots. And it began with people doing it on their own, saying, ah, we can get a house and and, and, and we can get some people to come together and share it. And then companies uh, started to uh, you know do a business of remodeling older houses specifically to turn them into shares 
and that's programming. How do you work out all these privacy issues and joint use, you know, uh, you know, common use issues, and then going into new projects. And there's quite a few new projects designed from the ground up as shares. Uh, this is a fascinating trend for me, and I think it's connected with this Kyosho Juteko trend as well. Um, it would be great to do to do tours and to show people about these things. I'd love to do that. I think some some of the houses definitely are really interesting to look at from the outside. Uh, for example, is it Penguin House that they use all the curtains? Yeah. So it's like a it's yeah. like the house is alive and moving because of these long, long, long curtains that flow in the breeze and actually make the house feel bigger than it is probably because of the yeah. curtains. Um, and then maybe yeah, it's the a very, tour very guide could have mm. pictures of what the inside looks like. So you don't have to impose on the residents every time, something like that. But yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, idea. there might be a way like there might be a way to see the exterior. But again, you know, um, this is this is one thing, you know, Japanese tend to be very private. And, and as you know, socially, it's not as common to invite people to your house to have a party at home. Uh, that's why we have the Ginkan where people can come and just they can do all your business just standing in the Ginkan. Uh, so it's, it's definitely a social resistance. But the Penguin House is a remarkable one. I'd love to go revisit it. I haven't seen it in a while. Um, and the big idea of that one um, is the, the main living space is on the top. Uh, the third floor, and it's surrounded by glass and a tall ceiling, and it's at the tree level, the treetop level. So you are literally surrounded by trees. It's a beautiful site. It was literally a parking space for two cars turned into a house and with the beautiful engineering that made it possible and enough uh, space actually for a music studio on the ground floor, which is the other part of the big idea. These are musicians. Um, they wanted a studio, so the ground floor is a music studio. It's just a couple. They don't have kids. Uh, second floor is like the bedroom, and the top floor is the kitchen living. And it's just remarkable. It's a fantastic, you know, house. You go down, you go, wow, you get to the top floor, and it's, my God, look at how beautiful this is. So um, it's it's just a wonderful design. And that's by uh, actually a tekto, Mr. Yamashita. He's really has done quite a few remarkable Kyosho Jutaku. And uh, Wendy says, even just looking at model kitchens, for example, and not necessarily whole houses would be useful. There's a lot of model homes in Japan. I know certain yes. areas have model homes. Um, and then I'm so sad when I see these beautiful model homes are knocked down to make new model yeah. homes in the same location. But, you know, that's kind of part of the business, I guess, right? Yeah. Some of them sell them. Some of them actually, they can actually be moved or, or dismantled and moved. Some do. But yeah, it's kind of amazing. I love going to Japanese home, model home places. There's there's one not too far from our house in Yokohama. Um, and it's, it's all about innovation and trying to paint a picture of what a desirable lifestyle is. What is a dream house? And actually, I have a book called The Japanese Dream House, which is about Japanese home manufacturing. Um, what is the dream? And, and you can see the changes over time towards more natural material, towards more family space, towards, let's say, something kinder and gentler at the same time as you have uh, this oshare, you know, very, you know, uh, you know, let's say uh, uh, up, upscale imagery in the homes as well. But I love them, although, you know, the model homes are often at the larger <laughs> and they're big. They tend to show the bigger homes. And of course, people come and say, oh, this is great. And then they actually look at their real situation and they often are forced to do something a little smaller like that. Um, but it's really interesting. I think they're, they're really great to see. And, and for me as a designer, I always spend time talking to them about the technical aspects. Well, tell me about the structure. Tell me about materials. And there's fantastic innovation in just about every aspect of home design in Japan. Yeah, wonderful. 
uh, Bernd has joined. Thanks jo for joining Bernd from YouTube. Uh, he says, again, a wonderful and informative talk, YouTube. Great. Keep it up. Uh, please, because it's an important, needed, and inspiring. Thank you so much, Bernd. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So your next book, which I'm hoping we can talk about next time, is on the dream home, because that's also a very interesting book. Um, but one more, we've got a couple more minutes. One of the, is it yeah. the tower, the tower yes. home and the tea style, the tower with a, a wedge off the top. Um, yes. I was yes. very yes. impressed by those. Yeah, the first one you showed is the one by Tadao Ando, uh, which again is is a remarkable one. The other one called TR House. Uh, yeah, that's Tadao Ando, and again, it's uh, you know really you know remarkable house. Um, but the TR House is again fairly low cost, um, and it's cantilevered out. It's really got this funny. It's like this upside down L. And, and the main living space is at the top, and it's got the surrounding band of windows. It's very, very modern. Um, you know, the, the bedroom's on the ground floor, the second floor. And again, these are fairly, very, very small footprint. Um, you know, the laundry and the, the, the bath, et cetera, is on the second floor. And, the, and this big one-room uh, living room on the top floor. And, you know, it's a very minimalist design and a minimalist house. And I think the owners, uh, again, it was a young couple with no kids. Um, they can live this way. And it's one of these examples of a very white, modern aesthetic uh, industrial um, it harks back to early modern architecture maybe you know the Arctic Le Corbusier who it looks like this stuff from the 1920s that he was doing uh, and and you go into the living room and you have this panorama in this case of of roofscapes it's you see you're at the up basically above at the roof level of all the two-story houses so you just see these roofs around it's really really nice uh and again you know it's flexible it's it's a very open space uh very very well designed but it, from the street it's got this funny attitude you know it's cantilever over it sort of hangs over where the car is right the little parking area uh and actually it also makes use of depth you have to actually step down in order to make the the, the bedroom and everything to fit in the building code and allowable floor area you have to sort of step down a little bit uh to to where the um the the bedroom is so yeah it's a it's a remarkable example um wonderful. yeah there's others as, as well so, so many, and again this is because so the engineering allowed examples it. so if if you're interested there are a lot more great examples in this book i would highly recommend it um i think you can get it from most bookstores in the states uh it you have to it's on order now if it's from amazon jp yeah. but it is possible so seek it out i'll put some links yeah. below yeah. yeah thank you, thank so, you so much, much. asby that was wonderful mm -hmm. and i think one of the biggest takeaways for me was that even if you have small dimensions by having windows by having natural light with skylights by even making translucent walls or floors you can bring more space into these small homes and there's a lot of great ingenuity and uh, innovation in terms of design. And I just, I found it so inspirational. So thank you so much for writing it. And thank you so much for <laughs> thank you. sharing your insights. Thank you. Yeah, wonderful. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It was very interesting. And again, I just want to say this all ties in with the same issues of uh, the environment, sustainability. Again, how do you build a house that uh, has a small ecological footprint and still uh, gives you a very, very good quality of life. And we know that it's possible. You don't have to build big to, uh, to really support a beautiful quality of life. So I hope that lesson 
呃，一重。And I think what you said about sometimes the very boring design and the very innovative,、uh, more comfortable living design, the price is about the same. So definitely, if you're doesn't have to for, be more expensive. If you're looking、yeah. for a new house,、uh, spend some time finding a design that you're gonna love and want to live in for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.、Uh, by all means, contact architects. Architects are happy to work on small houses, and and many of them will be able to do it、um, really at, at about the same cost as getting a, a house manufacturer or a normal builder to do it. So I I encourage people to make use of architects. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Asby.、Uh, tomorrow morning we're talking at 6 p.m. with Elizabeth Tasker. She is an astrophysicist. Working with JAXA, so a very new topic for us, but very important for sustainability. To talk about, is there another planet that might be habitable? We got big questions tomorrow. Thank you so much for joining, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you, Asby. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You can find out more information about me at inboundambassador.com, and have a look at buymeacoffee.com/jjwalsh if you want some bonus material and to support the work that I'm doing. Thanks a lot. Have a great day.